Welcome to the Whale Scout Podcast, everyone. My name is Whitney Negabauer, and today we are joined by Brian Scary. He is a National Geographic explorer and photographer. Today, we're going to be talking about Secrets of the Whales. It is a new four-part series set to air on April 22nd on Disney+. Plus. Brian, it is such a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Oh, thanks so much, Whitney. It's a pleasure to be here. So this new series explores whales around the world through the lens of culture. Specifically, you captured incredible footage of uh, orcas, humpbacks, belugas, and sperm whales. How did you first get involved with filming whales underwater? And do you remember your first experience? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I decided from a very young age that I wanted to explore the ocean. I fell in love with the sea as a child growing up in Massachusetts. And when I was about 15 years old, I started scuba diving. Um, I remember watching the old Cousteau documentaries and reading National Geographic magazine. So it was maybe a year or two after that that I attended a dive conference and I saw photographers and filmmakers presenting their work. And I, I often describe it as an epiphany where I realized I wanted to be a storyteller with a camera. It was a very lofty dream coming from this little working class town, didn't know how to do that. But uh, finally, that, that did happen. And I started working for National Geographic in 1998. But my very first whale encounter happened in 1985 in Cape Cod Bay. I had been out diving a shipwreck and came up from the dive, still wearing my dry suit, took my tanks off and so forth. And we heard over the marine radio a lobsterman who was calling the Coast Guard because he said he had a whale entangled in his lobster trawl line, the line that connects all the lobster pots. So he was leaving, so he, I guess, went away in his boat, but we took the coordinates down. I went over there, found the whale on the surface, and did a very foolish thing. I still wearing my dry suit. I jumped in with a knife and um, attempted to and finally was able uh, to successfully disentangle that whale. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Nobody in their right mind would do it, and I didn't know back then, but... Um, but that was my first whale encounter. It was a juvenile humpback, maybe 20 feet long. And I was enamored with whales. So during my career, whenever possible, I, I've sort of uh, found a reason to do stories about whales. The first big whale story I did for National Geographic magazine was in 2008 about right whales, um, the North Atlantic right whale, the most endangered whale in the world, and compared and contrasted them with their southern cousins, the southern right whales. I went to the Subantarctic of New Zealand, a new population um, that had never been photographed before. And in the decade or so since that story, I was very interested in doing a multi-species story, but the trick was finding the right narrative, how I would connect the dots. And ultimately, I, I settled, after reading a lot of science papers and talking to researchers, I settled on this notion of culture. And, um, and that was the story that, that I wanted to tell. What's it like being in the water, trying to capture evidence of culture in whales? With this project, what were the biggest challenges and what were some of the biggest surprises? Yeah, well, it's it's a good point. There are many challenges. And, you know, before I ever went to the field for the very first time on this project, <clears throat> I had done at least a, a couple of years of, of serious research where I was talking to scientists, trying to find out the best locations when I could predictably maybe 
find the animals, what the visibility would be like, um, what the infrastructure was like in that place, were, were there boats available, what would it take, would the scientists be able to join me on these trips and so forth. So kind of putting together the, the nuts and bolts. Um, once you're out there, the, the, the challenge is, you know, if you've done all your homework and you can sort of narrow the odds somewhat, um, you're going to have a better chance of success. But at the end of the day, there are so many variables that you cannot control. So the, the challenges include, of course, weather. Um, you know, wherever you are in the world, inevitably trying to do this work, it's going to be windy. There's going to be storms. You can't get out to even see if there are whales there. If, there, if it's not windy and the waves aren't bad and you can get out to sea, then you have to find the whales. They're not always going to be there. Some, of course, are more predictable than others at certain times of the year, but not always. Then if you find the whales and the weather is good, um, you have to get close to them and whales don't always want you near them. You might slip in the water 100 meters away and quietly swim toward them, uh, taking your time and they just swim the other direction very gently and you'll never keep up. Um, if they do let you close, then the visibility has to be good. You know, in, in underwater photography, we don't have the luxury of using a telephoto lens. We can't use a, a 600 millimeter lens. We have to get within a few meters of our subject. And that's completely up to the whale. Then the sun has to be shining most times because if it's not, I can't light a whale and it would just have no detail or color. Ideally, they are doing something interesting. If it's about culture, we want to see them interacting. So, you know, if you do the Venn diagram of all the things that have to line up, you end up with this tiny little bullseye in the middle. But that being said, you know, three years, 24 locations. Uh, we were very blessed, very lucky. We, we got everything that we wanted and much more. So obviously, any whale can outswim a human. So how do you logistically get in the right place at the right time? And have you ever felt threatened being so close to a whale? You're right. Um, any whale could easily leave me or any of us that do this in their wake, and they often do. So it's really not about, it, it is about getting in the right position, but only from the standpoint of never appro approaching too close with a boat. Um, we try to keep our distance, and that means we have to swim a lot further. The work that we're doing for, I guess, maybe 95, 98% of the time is free diving. We're just snorkeling. We're not using any kind of scuba. The bubbles might scare the whales, and just being encumbered with you know, 50 or 100 pounds of equipment would slow us down. We wouldn't be very nimble. Um, so it's really completely on the whale's terms. We're never going to necessarily position ourselves in a way that will, you know, sneak up on a whale or um, allow them to maybe pass by. But those kinds of images and scenes are less interesting. It's really the magic happens when you are able to get close. Obviously, the whale knows you're there. You're not surprising them. And they are engaged in some behavior, either with other whales or possibly with you, but more interesting with the other whales. You're, you're capturing some sort of social behavior or culture, as we say. So th those are sort of the, the, the way the logistics work, at least for me. And have you ever been really nervous in the water or felt oh. like, oh, gosh, I made the wrong choice here? <laughs> Yeah, well, I have, but not with whales. Um, you know, there have been some dicey moments with 
saltwater crocodiles or being lost under uh, polar ice where I couldn't find my exit hole. Or um, I remember doing a story in Ireland once and I came up from a dive and uh, my dry suit and the, the dive boat didn't see me. And I drifted for two and a half hours out to sea before being picked up by a fishing boat. Um, remember once in the South Pacific at night in an uninhabited island on a five-week expedition, uh, just about at dusk, um, being surrounded by more than 60 gray reef sharks. And that got pretty dicey, had to kind of get get out of the water as quickly as I could. So there have been dicey moments. Uh, that being said, I've never really had any of those with whales. Um, I think whales are operating on a very different level, not to say that they couldn't uh, hurt you. Uh, certainly an orca is more than capable of, of doing damage, but there's never been a recorded attack on a human in the wild. And um, I think there's a respect, there's a, a generosity, a, a politeness, if you will, with whales. They're very aware of me when I'm in the water. They, you know, if I'm in a place where they're swimming by, they will actually lift a pectoral fin or move a tail. Now, I have to be vigilant. I have to look around. I have to be aware. You know, you could get clocked by a, a tail or a pectoral fin if you're not watching and you try not to get that close anyway. So, um, but that being said, yeah, I have to say I've never really been uh, overly concerned. Cautious, you know, yes, vigilant, yes, not, not necessarily afraid. During this project, what was the most surprising or exciting um, moment that you captured that just really, you know, took your breath away? Oh, yeah, the, you know, there's so many, really, in each episode, there are some of those moments. I mean, some of the ones that immediately come to mind uh, include um, the time with orca feeding on stingrays in New Zealand when we were there to capture, you know, their international cuisine preference. I mean, the, the idea of culture is that they're doing things differently in different parts of the world, identical species doing things differently like humans, depending where they live. So the orca in New Zealand like to eat stingrays and the ones in Norway like herring or the ones in the Falkland Islands like elephant seal pops. So in New Zealand, um, we wanted to see this behavior that they have learned, that they're the only ones in the world that move into shallow harbors and mangroves and they grab a stingray, they turn it upside down, uh, immobilize it and then feed. Well, not only did I get in the water and, and see that, I saw this female orca swimming toward me, but then she drops it in front of me. I go down to the bottom, I kneel on the, the sandy floor, wondering if she's going to come back. And sure enough, she appears out of the corner of my right eye and swims behind my back and emerges in my left vision and then comes to a position directly in front of me. So there's the whale, there's the stingray and me. And she's looking at me and looking at the ray and looking at me and looking at the ray as if to say, you know, are you going to eat that? And then when I don't move towards it, she just gently goes down and picks it up. And, you know, I'm able to, to get this scene of an orca with this ray hanging out of her mouth. Uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum, I was in the Norwegian Arctic on Thanksgiving Day. First time in my career when I had been home uh, away from home on Thanksgiving. And it's a cold, snowy, gray, dark day. We're days away from the polar night when it's going to be dark 24 hours a day. And I'm thinking about my family back home eating turkey and celebrating and wishing I was there. But we go out in the boat and, and here's this family of orca moving very purposely through the fjord. And I'm able to get underwater and see there's a mom carrying her dead calf, um, you know, draped over her head in what appears to be a mourning ceremony. 
um, very obvious grief, it would seem. You know, uh, belugas playing games. We built new cameras, remote cameras that I was able to put in the water before the belugas come to this place and captured newborn babies and gameplay and them using the rocks on the bottom as a giant loofah to, to scrape off their skin. You know, in sperm whales in the Caribbean, this six-month-old calf uh, nursing from its mother, being able to capture the first um, first nursing behavior of, of uh, sperm whales. You know, Shane Garrow, the scientist who I worked with a lot on this project, told me that night when I showed him the footage, uh, he said, you know, there's an old saying in the whale biology world that someday we will know everything there is to know about whales except how a sperm whale calf nurses because they could never figure out how that lower jaw worked with the nursing um, behavior. But here we have this frame by frame analysis of the jaw slipping into a mammary slit and the milk uh, um, being delivered into the mouth. So, you know, to, to have a, a mom that was that relaxed and tolerant of me free diving down, you know, 40, 50, 60 feet to, to, to come into their world was extraordinary. So not hard to pick one, but many wonderful moments. Yes, I think that moment of a sperm whale nursing was just incredible because you're right, like the biology doesn't make sense. As a no. mother, I can tell you it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So we can check that one off the list now. Are there yeah. others that are on the list that you would like to capture? Well, yeah, I mean, that is the, the question, isn't it? I mean, I think as much as we were able to achieve and, and approach a series from a new perspective through the lens of culture with whales, um, what I've realized after three years is that we've only scratched the surface, only the tip of the iceberg is is observable at this moment. And, and I think in the time ahead, what's going on in the deep ocean? Um, there's a new project that National Geographic is part of. Uh, my friend, Dr. David Gruber and Shane Garrow are, are launching this project to try to figure out sperm whale language, the SETI project there. They're going to invest a, a ton of money and the latest and greatest technology to try to crack that code of their whale dialects. So what will we here when we finally figure out what whales are, are saying out there. Maybe we don't want to know. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's just an exciting time for technology, but it's also a race against time. The ocean is is dying this death from a thousand cuts, and these anthropogenic stresses are impacting not only whales, but everything that lives in the ocean and ultimately our species as well. So it's an exciting time, but that that window of opportunity, I believe, is is closing. In your work, how do you balance, you know, that time, that moment in the water when you're working with an individual animal? And how do you balance you know, the, the sort of conservation efforts with that individual and with the larger species and, and telling that story? How do you balance the, all of those things at once? So you're asking about the balance between individual species and how it relates to everything? Yeah. How do you balance, you know, just any potential disturbance that you might cause to that animal, uh, trying to study it, um, right. trying to capture it on film with the larger benefits that you can provide to that mm -hmm. whole species through telling their stories in these well, amazing films and yeah, books. That, that is a very, very important question, Whitney. And I think um, the, the welfare of the animal has to reign supreme. Um, you know, it's a slippery slope if we as filmmakers, uh, photographers, naturalists, scientists for that matter, if we say, well, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, you know, I don't think we can um, 
sort of use that excuse. I, I, I think it takes time. And, and I, I realize that time is money and that not everybody can do this, but we can't force things either. We, we, the, the last thing I would ever want to do is, is negatively impact an animal, somehow um, stress it or, or make it feel threatened or, or give a bad impression. You know, I often say that some of the whales that I'm seeing, like a humpback whale calf in, in the South Pacific, I might be the first human that that animal's ever seeing. I want to be a good ambassador. I want to be a good representative. I, I go out of my way to, to, to not be threatening or to calm my heartbeat if I can do it and not be too excited. I don't, I don't want them to feel a negative energy. Uh, maybe that's a bit extreme, but um, obviously, you know, storytelling, using good science to tell important stories about nature so we better understand our world. Um, I guess there is an argument to be made that the, the needs of the many would outweigh the needs of the few, you know, but I, I don't personally uh, feel that that's right. I don't think we can, uh, you know, use that excuse or rationalize that what we're doing is okay because it's going to make a difference. Um, that that is a slippery slope. I mean, things happen, you know, inadvertently, you you might be in a position and an animal gets too close to you and you have to back up and there's nothing you can do about it. And might that cause the animal a little stress? Possibly, you know. Um, so you, you have to be very aware and, and cognizant of, of your behavior, I think, in the water. Um, and, and most operators that run ecotourism, the ones that I've worked with are very good about this, you know, um, they will bend over backwards to make sure that it's it's happening correctly. Um, and I think that's that's the right approach. So along with the four-part series that comes out on Disney+, Plus, you've also put together this lovely book. I got my copy in the mail just oh, yesterday. And yeah, it's beautiful. Um, you. What is the difference between you know, putting together a book with still photos and stories? What's the difference between putting something like that together and putting something mm -hmm. together that's on film? Oh, wow. It's great. Well, you know, I, I think all are equally important in their own realm. And when I created Secrets of the Whales and, and went around to the different divisions at National Geographic to, to sort of pitch it, um, I, one of my arguments was that this was an important story, that the notion of whale culture in many respects, in my opinion, is a game changer. If humans can see the ocean through the lens of culture with these um, charismatic animals that are exhibiting almost human-like traits, that that changes our view. We don't unknow that. You know, we, we might change our behavior as a result of that. It's not the kind of thing you can unknow. So um, there are different audiences and you can do things with still photography that you can't do with video and vice versa, you know, motion picture. Uh, appeals to people in a different way and having the beautiful music of, of Raphael's score in the in the episodes, um, the music and the sounds and Sigourney Weaver's narration. Um, so that's, that's all um, uh, appealing to people on one level. But a book, you know, I mean, I love books. I'm a, I'm a visual person. I was inspired to become a photographer by another underwater photographer's book, a guy named um, Bill Kurtzinger, who back in the 70s, I think, or early 80s, did a book called Wake of the Whale. That inspired me to do what I do today. So a book has a shelf life. It can last. You know, the series, God willing, will be around for a long time. But um, you know, my book might be there 10 or 20 years from now and inspire somebody else. And I'm 
telling very personal stories. The series is more about the whales. Uh, it, it's, it's purely focused on them and their culture. I'm doing the same thing in the book, but it's more personal. I'm saying, this is what I saw. Th these are the experiences I had. And, you know, take that for what it's worth. Maybe that inspires you. Maybe you say, oh, who cares? But at the end of the day, it's it's going to be something that you can sit with. You can have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee and, you know, revisit it over and over again. And I think a still frame, um, our brains process different than motion picture, for example. So so I think, you know, having the book, um, the, the the 40 page cover story in, in National Geographic magazine, which will come out um, in, a, in another week or so, um, and the series, all sort of do different things. But as a storyteller, it's wonderful to have all, all three. Yeah, I think the, the favorite part in the book is the behind the shot uh, little sections where you get to explain what's going on. So it gives a little bit of, a, a, of your perspective as well. Um, yeah. And I love that. And it includes information about dolphins and the, um, the right whales that you had explained earlier. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we expanded in the book. So the episodes on Disney Plus are going to focus on the four main species. But, you know, with the book, I was able to go back and, and look at previous work, uh, the work I did with dolphins and right whales, as you say, which expands it in, in the, the lead story in the in the right whale uh, chapter about Porter, the whale that, you know, left the New England coast and journeyed across the ocean to Norway. Nobody could figure out why he was hanging out on that coast. And then years later, they discovered that there was a whaling factory in that place. And, you know, these dyed-in-the-wool scientists who are very traditional had no other explanation perhaps than these whales are passing down stories. And Porter, the right whale, decided he wanted to go see where his ancestors had, had been killed and, and processed. So, you know, we don't know if that's true, but even if there's a remote chance that it is, it's a story worth telling. Can you share a little bit more about what's going to be coming out in the National Geographic magazine? Right. So the magazine story um, is another variation on the theme. I think it's probably even a little bit more science-based. Uh, the writer, Craig Welch from Seattle, who's a fantastic science writer, natural history writer, you know, I remember him calling me after he got the assignment, after my story had been approved and, and he was asked if he would um, want to write it. He called me and we we chatted for a while and he instantly embraced the idea. I remember him saying, and, he, and there's a guy who's done a lot of natural history stories, a lot of science stories, many different species, you know, permafrost and all kinds of animal stories. And, and I remember him saying, you know, wow, Brian, if this, he, I think he used the term game changer as well. He was like, if, if we can get people to see animal culture, how amazing is that? You know, our view of the natural world changes. So he instantly embraced the theme and he did, you know, as National Geographic does, they don't want the, the writing to just support the pictures or the picture to just support the writing. It's two sort of independent um, entities that collectively give the reader a lot more. So he went in the field in uh, Dominica. He spent time on the, on the research sailboat, the Belena, with uh, Hal Whitehead and Shane Garrow. I was there, but land-based going out in other boats, uh, we would, you know, meet at sea and do things. But he interviewed so many other researchers along the way and 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 put together his own narrative, his own text manuscript that that fills in a lot of the blanks that the pictures don't do. And from the beginning, I always sort of said that, um, you know, this story 
was going to rely heavy on the text. They, they, they had to do a lot of the heavy lifting because there's only so much I can show uh, in still frames. Um, in the book, I'm talking more personal stories. The film is all about the, the animals and their motion and the cultures and all the things we're seeing. Um, but this, the, the science has really come alive, I think, in the, in the magazine piece. Well, I can't wait to see it. And I spent many hours of my own childhood sitting on the floor and reading through National Geographic magazines. And I really do think it had a huge influence on the rest of my life. For viewers out there who are are young and they're interested, um, maybe they one day hope to be a National Geographic explorer. What advice do you have for them? Well, I hope there's lots of young people out there who want to do this kind of thing. And I would say, you know, follow your heart, go with your passion. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Um, but be prepared to work hard. You know, it's not easy. Um, I was I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, what do you like to do for vacation? And it occurred to me, I haven't had a vacation since 1993. Um, my wife and I went hiking in the Grand Canyon back in 93 before we had kids. And since that time, my work has really occupied, you know, 24 um, seven, but I love it. it it's, it's a labor of love. Um, but also I would recommend having a strategy. You know, I think one of the mistakes, especially in the photo world that a lot of young emerging photographers might make is they want to emulate their, the people who inspire them. So they might save up their money and buy the camera equipment. And then they save up their money and go on a exotic trip where they might only be able to spend a week or two. And trying to compete with somebody who can spend months in a place is, is not overly productive. So Work in your own backyard, you know, give yourself personal projects, you know, have repeatability with whatever subject it might be. It could be terrestrial wildlife. It could be underwater wildlife if you live near uh, an ocean place or water place. But you can be the very best photographer on those subjects in the world. Sell those stories, maybe partner with a writer or write it yourself. Build a portfolio because at the end of the day, you will either be hired or maybe not hired based on the strength of your portfolio. So, you know, have a strategy that says, how do I get from where I am today, where I need to be? Do I need to go to college? Do I need to take workshops? Do I need to mentor with people? There's lots of avenues to pursue, but have a strategy, follow your passion, don't give up. And I promise you, if I can do it, you can do it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for for joining us today. As always, if you like this video, please like and subscribe. For more information, you can go to whalescout.org. Thank you so much, Whitney. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today and good luck with everything. We can't wait to, to be able to share everything with the rest of the world. Thank you. All right. Thanks.